All right, welcome to you talking with Greg. I'm super excited because we have two excellent guests today uh, who I think uh, share some fascinating background that I've been diving in. Uh, it's Benita Roy and Matt Segal. I think you guys know both these uh, wonderful individuals. Uh, and so the three of us have been having some exchanges. Um, I am almost done reading Matt's book. I know Bonnie's reading Matt's book. Um, and they're in the process of talking about process ontology. Uh, and I'm in the process of learning. Uh, and uh, we're seeing the interface also a little bit with you talk. Of course, Matt uh, was on Transcendent Naturalism. And then we talked with Bonnie about that. Uh, welcome, both of you. Excited for this. Been looking forward to it for a while. Amen. Yeah, this is this is really, I, I would categorize this as really good work. You know, the kind of work that's playful and imaginative. But um, I guess we're going to we're going to start with maybe I could just read those bullets that I put on I the email that. and yeah. then and then carry it into more of a personal thing just to frame it for the audience. Yeah. So uh, to, before let me just set you up real yeah. fast with that. OK, uh, so Bonnie's going to read something uh, which, which was very uh, meaningful to me in just a in a, just a very straightforward way. And that is she started. Well, here's what I'm after. Um, and I just want to know that I was like, hey. And, and it spoke to me, um, and at the level of you talk, that's a very much a, a frame where I often feel. Uh, in fact, we built a credo, me and Masia built a credo around you talk, uh, trying to specify, I think, a lot of what it is that you're about to share. So uh, I deeply appreciate that. So uh, Bonnie shared some thoughts about what she was after, uh, and I think that's a great jumping off point for us. Yeah, and I'm going to read the bullets in a second. But the other thing I'm just thinking right now is like um, – is is it's like a tri we're a triangle with three sides. Like there is what Matt and Greg align on, and then there's what me and Matt align on a certain line, and then what me and Greg align on. And every time I feel into those three different relations, they feel different. Mm. And so then the, what, what we're trying to do is like, so what is the triangle? Like what is in the center of the triangle? Um, so I would say uh, that's how I experienced the, the group here. And let me just read those bullets and then we can go from there. All right. So, uh, so I'm uh, after a good metaphysics. So what makes a good metaphysics? Clarity, precision in language, clean definitions, sharp reasoning. Uh, simplicity, capturing the essence of by releasing the excess complexity without reducing the rich complexity. And I just uh, quoted from Matt's book because I use the same example. What does that mean? Releasing complexity without reducing it. And that is moving from uh, Ptolemy's geocentric epicycles to uh, Copernicus heliocentric orbits, for example. Um, the third uh, feature of a good metaphysics is error correction, correcting errors within or contradictions across disciplines. This one's really important, I think, for you, Greg, that all the disciplines are contradicting each other somehow. Um, so it's got this kind of transdisciplinarity to it. Um, the fourth thing is unity and scope of the concepts. So expanding the capacity to say more with less. This is a tricky one because you can get down to saying, um, you know, and it says everything. So this is, there's a point of re diminishing returns in this one. 
Uh, and the last one is resonance with experience, always coming back to experience itself. So as you, the concepts become more generalized and more abstract, then do they map onto, you know, how is it that I and my experience are exist in this universe that you're describing? Um, and then I just um, say, you know, there's a good metaphysics, that's, that's a goal. Um, but I think we all have a more um, human-centric uh, wish for this work, and that is, you know, what is the spirituality we need today? What is the psychology need we need today? What is the worldview we need today? And this is a practical question because I think we're all committed to having the answer to that make a real difference in the world, whether it's for me, the biggest one is always uh, preserving nature and having a thriving planet. And there's other, you know, others, we all agree on the whole set, but um, this, I think, um, so for me, I just answered, what is the spirituality we need today? Uh, one must feel whole. We could talk about this next statement, but one must feel that the self is not split into parts, that the self is one experiential nexus, that the body and mind are one whole, not fragmented, and the people and nature are one continuous whole, not separated in space or time. One must experience the self as a causal agent in the co-creation of reality, and hence know it matters what kind of self one cultivates. Matt, this is a great job in uh, talking about the self as a causal agent in the co-creation of reality. Uh, we must learn how to close the gap between what is and what ought to be. There's a whole can of worms there. Uh, we must move from egocentric and anthropocentric to allocentric and planetary modes of perception, cognition, and awareness. We must appreciate the mysterious origins of the cosmos and the irreducibility of the other. And we must develop a deep intuition of the non-duality of life and death. So that just kind of gives the audience an idea of the framing that I put out there that's in our minds as we uh, delve into these, uh, this conversation. Great. Um, yeah, no, that's uh, that's really meaningful for me. Um, you know, my so the metaphysics, the the, the choice of that word um, is meaningful in my own journey uh, as an empirically oriented scientist. Uh, it was I'm late to the game uh, in framing metaphysics that way, and then realized that my entire project, really um, grounding in the tree of knowledge is really trying to get a descriptive metaphysical system for psychology and then down into the biology and, and social sciences at the site of the institution of science and then into the ontology of, you know, uh, scientifically elucidated reality that is also consistent with our experience and how a mind can emerge out of matter and life uh, and recursively uh, reflect upon itself inside of a culture. Um, so I deeply, deeply appreciate the art, uh, uh, desire for good metaphysics um, and and my book, the 2022 uh, book, a new synthesis, is essentially framed that way. Um, and the quest for that is in part because of um, you know a meaning mental health crisis, putting in more in my clinical side. You know we're we're distressed, we're confused, we're nihilistic. We don't have right relationship to nature. We don't have uh, a grounding as the digital tsunami emerges, etc. Um, and what is sacred? 
um, what is the conception of soul spirit in relationship to the uh, unfolding uh, life world? I mean, for me, those are all we have. We don't have the right distributed grip on either one of those questions, and I'm uh, deeply uh, searching for them. So I, I was really touched by the way you framed that. So that's my general reaction. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, I think what's always seems to be an initial stumbling block in um, a lot of the conversations that I try to, to have intervening in uh, discussions among scientists is that metaphysics is dismissed as sort of something extra or it's not needed. Like we have science now as if science replaces metaphysics. And I think it's important to uh, properly define the term. I understand it has its uh, connotations and, um, popular meanings, you know, I always use the example of you go into Barnes and Noble, you, you go into a major bookstore and the metaphysics shelf is uh, about crystal healing and tarot cards and whatever, all of which is interesting. But mm -hmm. when, we, when we talk about metaphysics in this context, um, we're just talking about the attempt to surface the most general categories in terms of which we make sense of the world. And whether we're doing physics or biology or psychology, whether we're trying to interpret our mystical experiences, whether we're trying to uh, resolve an argument with a loved one, <laughs> we're, we're making statements, we're forming propositions that presuppose a certain general systematic background of relationships. And metaphysics is just this attempt to get meta and to arrive at... Um, you know, the philosophical presuppositions of science, of um, ethics, of all of human experience, ultimately. Would we be capable of metaphysical exploration if we were not speaking animals, languaging animals? No. Does that mean metaphysics is just an artifact of the fact that we're obsessed with finding some way of languaging our experience? No. I think language is an expression of and a, a complexification of an intensification of uh, certain forms of, of feeling that are rooted in our bodies and that are ultimately rooted in the history of the cosmos itself. And while language can lead us astray, we can get lost in abstractions. We can uh, come up with these various forms of symbolism that in a way lift us out of the real world and we begin to live in our symbolic world instead of in, in the actual world. But, you know, we have no other means of relating to the actual world except through symbolism, as it turns out, as human beings, I mean. And so the challenge is not to think we could uh, scrape off the symbolism to get to the the ground floor of reality it's well how do we get our symbols and our way of languaging our experience to come into resonance with those deeper feelings out of which we are composed right and you know i love the way you laid it out uh for us uh bonnie and, and we want to search for a good metaphysics but maybe one way of um sharpening even more than you already have for us. What we mean by good metaphysics is to talk about what we mean by bad metaphysics. And I think 
there's a lot of bad metaphysics in, uh, for example, um, the ways that contemporary science gets popularized. Um, I'm going to pick on, uh, let's choose one. Let's pick on Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, you know, he'll make various claims about, uh, the nature of science and scientific facts and, um, even the history of science that I think is a good example of bad metaphysics because it's, as I started out, you know, my comments here saying a lot of contemporary physicalists or materialists would, would like to think that we've outgrown the need for metaphysics because now we just have science and we can just know what the facts are without all this speculation about this and that. And the reason that I think, um, the sorts of, um, more or less scientific materialist uh, claims that Tyson would, will make are examples of bad metaphysics is because the metaphysics is implicit. We, good metaphysics is, is the attempt to be as explicit as we possibly can about everything we're presupposing. And the problem is with bad metaphysics is that, you know, often Tyson will make claims about say the nature of human consciousness as though it's uh, just obviously um, caused by the brain and the brain is a product of evolution, which is all just survival mechanisms and natural selection. And it's on this chemical substrate, which is ultimately determined by physical laws. And if you just tell that kind of a simple story, what it ends up doing is undermining the conditions, the, the metaphysical, metaphysical conditions for the possibility of science itself. How do we have scientific knowledge of all this mechanism that you're describing? If we ourselves are just an epiphenomenon of that mechanism. And so when we're trying to do good metaphysics, we want to include ourselves and the, own, the, the the knowledge claims that we ourselves are making in our account of the nature of reality, because we are an expression of the very reality we are trying to explain. And that's what it means to get meta. It's like, how do we include ourselves in this equation? So good metaphysics, I would think, would be avoiding uh, the... Avoiding begging the question, basically, and avoiding these kinds of performative self-contradictions that I think are often on display in the ways that um, we attempt these heroic feats of explaining away, as Whitehead phrases it. Yeah. I, I'll just say, jump in. I'd love 10 minutes with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson to tell him about my discipline and its attempt, <laughs> psychology's attempt to go empirical and to then uh, bag metaphys the metaphysical question of its very concepts and categories that actually define it, behavior, science, and mind, uh, and the enormous just general confusion and the failure. If, we, if I was trained in metaphysics, just at the concepts and categories that bring clarity or assumptions or know that we don't have clarity, life would have been very different. Uh, in my uh, and, and much cleaner and more honest uh, uh, about what we know, what we don't know, how we know. And I also couldn't agree more that we need a big picture metaphysics that includes the physicists and the physics uh, and the physicists generating physics. So I'll, I'll hush up, but those are just questions. Uh, yeah, so I'll piggyback on that. I think that philosophy 
and science have always uh, been watching each other. You know, like the, the philosopher scientist par excellence in the Western canon is Aristotle, right? He's a philosopher, but then he ding, 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 makes lists like a scientist, but he doesn't have any empirical science. Um, and sometimes I think that, um, you know, there's just a collective consciousness growing. So the kinds of things that the philosophers are doing are the kinds of questions that the physicists are bumped up against. Um, but I think we live, well, well, let me talk about just before I say that. Um, so there's two types of ways in which philosophers piggyback on science. And one is what you're talking about, the popularizers who completely bastardize it, like the movie, what to bleep do we know? And, you know, and um, there, on the other hand, there are popularizers who really help you understand the science without, um, you know, making it some kind of new age woo-woo. So we're, we're not talking about that kind of relationship, but I think we live in an interesting time because, um, scientists themselves, science itself has bumped up against limitations that are metaphysical in nature, right? So, um, you know, you have someone like Michael Levin um, completely breaching the, um, the, the assumptions of biology, and um, he's admitting that he had these ideas like 20 years ago. But he didn't just come out and say them because he had no empirical evidence and he would have been laughed out of the academy. And so what he's admitting to is that at a certain phases in science, it's that kind of imaginative thinking that what if, what if this assumption is what's limiting our success in this field? Why not just hypothesize? I mean, science runs on hypothesis. These are all what if questions. And I think the institution of science has gotten to be so uh, insular that the hypothesis, the, the hypotheses can no longer break the tradition. I mean, this was, um, so that's one thing. And then you have people like Sabina Hassenbetter who, who is kind of a pugilist. Um, and she's very careful to say, you know, someone I saw on uh, IAI, um, they asked her, what is gravity? And she's saying, as a physicist, I can't answer that. You know, all I can tell you are these mathematical equations, because actually we don't know what the science says. We don't know what gravity is. It's not a force. Um, it, we don't know what it is. And so this immediately says, well, maybe you could do progress if you could open up what are, what are the kinds of things that feel like gravity? Or what are the experiential things that are, feel like gravity? Let's open up the metaphysics that is, uh, you know, I mean, they're looking for, you know, the graviton wave and the graviton particle because every other fundamental force is a particle and, uh, and a force. And I would argue that every time they discover something, they have to discover either the particle or the force that goes with it because physicists have been all from the beginning committed to supersymmetry. So if you're committed to supersymmetry and you find, oh, something that doesn't fit, then you're going to make all kinds of experimental, uh, you're going to tune your experimental apparatus to find the thing that fits with it. I would say 
um, that this is a result of their metaphysics that they start assuming that there's supersymmetry. What if we don't assume there's supersymmetry? What if we assume that one of the principles of the universe is asymmetry, which would be more aligned with process philosophy? There's asymmetry and wholeness, but not supersymmetry. And so this all of a sudden, I mean, I'm not a physicist, so I cannot take this question, this opening any further than that. But I think that there are a lot of opportunities for people who are rigorous philosophers and are doing rigorous metaphysics. I mean, um, you know, Matt, in this book, you talk a lot about uh, secondary sources who really are tying in physics to some of these metaphysical explorations. Um, I think there's a, a lot of good work that can be done, done there. Um, in terms of Greg's work, you know, if you want to talk about clinical psychology, what's the metaphysics of the self? within either just a uh, experiential framework or within this cosmological framework. Like, and um, so that's what I would say that um, why metaphysics is, is renewed today and is a golden opportunity today because I think that, or even just Stephen Hawking's, you know, he didn't write the book, he dictated it somehow to uh, Herzog, but uh, her, but uh, all it is really is metaphysics that has in its awareness what kinds of things it has to comply to in order not to violate the science. But it's metaphysical speculation and his drawings are just, uh, yeah. So um, I think all good scientists at the edge of um, their fields are secretly or implicitly um, realizing that their mental models and their metaphysics are limiting. And that in the history of science, we've seen this before, like, you know, these dramatic shifts in the way we perceive and ask questions can make dramatic shifts in um, the hypotheses, which then lead to dramatic shifts in, um, in our science and hopefully our technology, because right now, um, you know, even the physicists feel like they're doing less and less work in a tiny, tinier and tinier space. And um, there are no, uh, Peter Thiel argues this, there's no, there's no big revelations uh, coming anymore, but the field is completely broken. It's not unified. And they, by their own admission, they can only study three, three to 5% of uh what they think exists. So if this isn't a crisis in science, then um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what is. All right. Yeah. If I can jump in on that. I mean, it seems like in the last um, hundred years, science as a result of these new revolutions in physics, relativity and quantum physics has become increasingly instrumental because the old metaphysics inherited from Descartes and Newton had worked up until that point. And then with these, with the new physics, uh, that old metaphysics doesn't work, but rather than realize, oh, I guess we need a new um, understanding of the basic nature of reality. 
the scientists didn't want to go there. I mean, the original quantum physicists did actually go there. Yeah. Um, you know, Bohr and Heisenberg and Schrodinger and Pauli. And I mean, they were all doing amazing work to interface between physics and metaphysics. And they, they had a deep respect for philosophy. Uh, but that was lost as just a function of the way that science is professionalized, that the, you know, the mantra should have been calculate took over. And the thing about quantum physics um, is, is that it's a recipe for making predictions that are more accurate than any other paradigm in the history of science. And so it just afforded this um, tremendous advance in science as a form of um, instrumentalism, where it's more about predict predicting and controlling than it is about understanding what it is that you're controlling. And, you know, Whitehead is um, an example of a figure who tried to do systematic metaphysics uh, beginning in the 1920s when um, science was going in this more instrumental direction and philosophy was also giving up on metaphysics itself, becoming ling linguistic analysis or phenomenology and bracketing the question of what reality is. And uh, Whitehead just articulated this new cosmology in an attempt to provide science with a new metaphysics that it had lost when the mechanistic view was destroyed. And it's been in cold storage for a while, but now I think people are recognizing, oh, process ontology does help us make sense of quantum phenomena in a way that's not, um, that doesn't require breaking logic. But, um, you know, I love the fact that, uh, I love Sabina uh, Hassenfelder's work. I think she's intervening in all the right ways. Um, I disagree with her again, sort of implicit metaphysics, which is more mm -hmm. or less materialism, but what she's doing in terms of questioning this uh, movement in physics just into the math, away from facts and groundedness and empirical observations is so important. Yeah. You know, as, as I say in Physics of the World Soul, uh, contemporary physical cosmology, to my mind, is... Um, becoming increasingly, it's looking increasingly like the state of astronomy uh, before Copernicus. In other words, you have all these epicycles, you have all these attempts to fudge the free parameters of these, these equations and these models uh, to make them fit observations. And, you know, when we're talking about physical cosmology, there aren't that many observations. And so there's lots of room for theory and math to come in there. And you can invent 11 dimensions that fits with the few data points that we have. And then, there you go. You have your string theory of everything. <laughs> but to what extent is that falsifiable? To what extent is that still scientific in the sense that we can eliminate alternatives? Um, I don't know how many different versions of string theory there are, but, you know, right. a significant number. You know, and so one of the things uh, I want to share a line from Whitehead here. One of the reasons we'll, we'll never be done with metaphysics is for this reason, Whitehead says, uh, right at the beginning of Process and Reality, page nine, um, he says, the history of thought shows that false interpretations of observed facts enter into the records of their observation. Thus, both theory and received notions as to fact are in doubt. Right? And so when we study the history of science, we see there are these paradigm shifts and things that 
um, it's not just that new, better models are introduced. It's that when a, you know, a new paradigm emerges, it's a gestalt shift in our whole perception of the world. New facts appear to us that didn't appear in the prior paradigm. Right. And so the anomalies are building up in physical cosmology and, yeah. you know, the James Webb space telescope is just the latest example of all of the ways in which, um, the standard model of cosmology doesn't quite fit the phenomena. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I love Sabine and I get what you're saying. You know, she's very careful because she's always saying as a scientist and then she'll, so I'm I'm waiting for her to say, well, as a person and then give us a, a new view of her. But, you know, she has a very strong critique against that, the math and the beauty of math and the symmetry and the theory is is priming the science it's you know so like she has a critique of the of the spending all this money on these large colliders because if you spend enough money and you keep tweaking you're going to find what you're looking for because the experimental setup is already embedded in the theory it's so deeply embedded in the theory that the the cart is leading the horse you know and and she's good to to uh quote because she is an inveterate, uh, staunchly scientist as a scientist, you know? So I think there's a lot of things she's saying that's actually quite, now she's not gonna say uh, the metaphysics is leading the science. She's she's making a different statement, but it's it's consistent, I think, what what we're talking about. Uh, I just wanna plug a book and a a thinker, uh, Bjorn Ekberg, he wrote this book called Metaphysical Experiments, which I highly, highly recommend, um, which speaks to exactly these issues. And he he looks at uh, CERN and the whole history of particle colliders. And also uh, he, he wrote this book as the James Webb Space Telescope was uh, still being developed and hadn't quite launched yet. Uh, but he was already showing how the theory, um, general relativity is sort of baked into the design of that instrument. And so there are, there's some sense in which whatever it ends up observing can't contradict the theory because, because it can only observe what the implications of the theory are. Exactly. <laughs> that's what when it, it's like that, that video I think you sent on Twitter, uh, on Twitter uh, t- <laughs> this week. And, and he was saying how they're looking for anomalies, but it's very, very hard to look at pulsars because they undergo such dramatic redshift. And I'm like, but there's the tautology right there. If what they're trying to prove is wrong, then redshift, the theory of redshift is wrong. And so you can't use, you know, so it's all this, it's, it's, it's. Right. What's the, observ- what's the observation and what's the theory, right? Exactly. We observe, we could say we observe redshift, but right. often they say scientists will slip and say, we observe expansion. Yeah. There are other explanations of redshift besides expanding space. But they don't even observe space. redshift. They observe sure. data that's yeah. been calculated and computed by an algorithm that naively assumes the theory is correct. They're locked. You know, there's this. There's this sense. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying. Look, I think with a new metaphysics, the thing. You know, there's there's new vitality, and then maybe if unless our brains change 
dramatically, then a new metafixit will get closed too. But the point is, is can we open science to this larger rhythm of metaphysics, hypotheses, then there's diminishing return in this metaphysics, and then breathe again, and, and the philosophers can watch the scientists and, and you know, so, so um, it's, and, and this is the other thing, like you said this, and part of their metaphysics is that there is an answer. So even if they were willing to change their theory dramatically, like a new Einstein, they would have this sense that, oh, now we've got it, versus this rhythm between the metaphysics and the capacity for the mind to, to breach epistemic constraints. I mean, there are there one of the fun things about doing metaphysics if you is that you come up like if something came if God is the origin of everything, then what's what's the meaning of something that what's the meaning of origin if there's no outside? And then this is an opportunity to notice that the mind, your, your cognitive apparatus is limited. It keeps banging against, you know, and I know Whitehead addressed this and you addressed it, but this, this, you begin to appreciate how, first of all, creative your mind is to have come up with these concepts, but how much, um, more creative you could be. And, and just having epistemic constraints, I think is really, just be, being excavating these epistemic constraints, I think is really a good practice to understand the nature of knowledge or the nature of thought or the nature of um, of mind, really. Uh, um, like I was, taught, I was saying to you, I, I worked some of it out and, you know, I was saying, I can't, can't figure out Whitehead's God. And then I'm like, well, what God, his God doesn't live in the space-time framework that we do. And then what could the space-time framework God live in? Why should we think he's in our past, present, and future? And then there's this epistemic constraint. Well, what are these alternative temporal rhythms and stuff? So I think these are, you know, it can be fun to, to really... Um, it's not a rat. See, it's not like a typical philosopher asking a question and then going down the rabbit hole. It's like looking at the rabbit hole and starting to see the rabbit hole open up. It's mm. it's it's more like that. It sounds like people running down a rabbit hole when you hear metaphysicians talk, but yeah. You want to jump in, Greg? Go ahead. Well, one of the things <laughs> that I would invite. Uh, so, uh, Bonnie, you just you read. Uh, I think you mentioned you basically finished Matt's book. Um, and I was wondering if we could move at least some of the conversation uh, toward uh, what Matt uh, articulated in that book and Bonnie, your reaction. Uh, and then I can offer a more distant reaction because I'm not in, uh, as familiar. One thing I will say, I'll throw this out to you as, a, as an outsider for Whitehead. Uh, when we say uh, metaphysics should be simple, <laughs> Whitehead's language, at least in my experience, Whitehead's language is that it doesn't exactly conform to that. So that's one of my experiences of Whitehead. I find the concepts at times to be a little bit less than that. 
um, and the grapping, gripping of them. So that's what, one of the things I wouldn't mind uh, processing at some point. But but before that, I'd like maybe, um, Matt, if you could just sort of summarize the crossing of the threshold a little bit about kind of what, I know maybe a tough task, it's a rich uh, and fascinating uh, book that I'm almost done with, as I mentioned, but didn't quite. And then, Bonnie, it sounded to me like you enjoyed especially the ending, um, and I'd be curious to get your reaction, and then maybe we could sort of consolidate a little bit about what um, maybe the message is and some of what we would all agree on or some questions that we would have, if that's okay, if that sounds all right. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll try to summarize crossing the threshold in a second here, but I, I want to, well, first I'll say Whitehead has this great line, seek simplicity, but distrust it. Right. So we want to be as, we want our metaphysics to be as simple as possible, but no simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yep. And just in terms of, you know, the word God has been brought up a few times. And I think among in mixed company, especially among people who are serious scientists, um, that is immediately going to lead them to search for the exit. And it's one of the problems that Whitehead's work has been, um, you know, in cold storage, as I said, or left on the shelf for so long and not picked up as um being of service to scientific investigation and our understanding of how the various sciences fit together and the search for some transdisciplinary language in terms of which we can think, you know, as you're trying to do with you talk, you know, uh, how the special sciences relate to one another. And so I wanted to just clarify what he means by God, um, which is part of specifically ask about that. (laughs) And I'll actually make a little plug uh, for the conference folks, the conference, uh, Utah Consilience Conference, is coming up uh, April 12th and 13th. Layman Pass, uh, so that everyone knows that in Utah and the imagery, we have the garden, <laughs> Garden of Eden, Tree of Knowledge, and on the backside, we have our elephant sun god representing the ultimate transcendent. Um, we're going to end the Utah conference uh, with an articulation of the concept of God or God, wisdom, and science. Uh, Layman Pascal is going to lead that. Um, and he wrote to me when I asked him, would you do that? He said, yes, uh, that's going to be a topic of metamodern spirituality con, uh, frame in end of May. Um, and then when I said, Layman, who would you like? He said, Hey, uh, Matt and Bonnie come to mind. He's like, how do you feel about that? And I was like, Oh, uh, no way. I don't want not them. <laughs> no, I didn't Usual say that. Subs- uh, you know, uh, so anyway, uh, that, that's really, this is a beautiful, I was making sure, I appreciate that, Matt. That is, I have a little script right here that says, hey, make sure we at least query about the concept of God and make the plug. So I appreciate the setup, friend. Uh, so there, yeah. there's my little yeah. advertisement for the conference and reflection uh, will be coming down the line. So appreciate that. So... Yeah, and I wish I could be there uh, in person uh, for that, but uh, well, yeah, it's an ongoing conversation, right? So, you know, Whitehead in in his first truly uh, philosophical book, Science and the Modern World, in 1925, um, he begins to develop his theology for the first time. You know, he'd written a bunch of amazing books in philosophy of science um, in the early 19 well, late 1919. Um, inquiry into the principles of natural knowledge, where he's engaging with Einstein and relativity and trying to understand. Uh, a lot of people at the time thought that relativity theory implied some kind of idealism. Um, and Whitehead's like, no, you could still be a realist and think in terms of the universe as a series of interrelated events and whatnot, as Einstein was suggesting. 
And then in uh, 1920, he has his book called The Concept of Nature, which again is articulating um, a new definition of science that wouldn't, as he says, bifurcate nature into primary and secondary characteristics. He basically says nature is what we are aware of in perception. That includes the redness of the sunset as much as the vibrations of energy that physics would want to describe it in terms of. Um, but he's not doing metaphysics yet in these books. It's in science in the modern world that he tries to introduce the need for a new metaphysical scheme uh, to undergird and justify the claims that these that physics is making now in light of quantum and relativity and to connect physics and biology in a coherent way and all these things. So in his historical analysis of science in that book, he points out, he asked the question, why does physical science, the scientific method emerge in Europe at the time that it, that it does? What are the kind of cultural preconditions for this? And he says, well, there's a very unique theological background here. And it's not a coincidence that all of the first scientists who articulate this empirical method with a, with a mechanistic ontology underlying it were devoutly religious. They were deists and they wanted to understand God rationally, but the whole idea that the universe should be rationally ordered, as Ani was saying, that there's an answer to these questions is a theological presupposition. There's no reason that nature should be unified and lawful other than that there would be some principle of order or some principle of sufficient reason, right? That, that permeates it. And so when you ask, well, where does that come from? Traditionally, we have this word God, right? Whitehead wants to be clear though, that when he introduces this concept of God, that it is a concept, it's a metaphysician's God. He's trying to analyze our experience and the terms in which we can coherently think about our experience as dispassionately as he can. And just, he's, he points to Aristotle as he, he thinks probably the last metaphysician who developed a theology independent of religious emotions, just in an attempt to explain he took to be physics at that point. And Whitehead says, our physics has moved on. We don't need, as Aristotle did, an account of the first cause and the source of motion in the universe. But Whitehead says we have an analogous problem uh, in contemporary physics, which is how do you get um, actuality out of possibility. How does the wave function collapse uh, to, to put it in other terms? Uh, how do you move from nothing, which, you know, physicists like Lawrence Cross will claim we can define mathematically to something. Um, and Whitehead thinks he, he develops a concept of God in order to account for this transition in an analogous way that Aristotle tried to explain the origins of motion. So, and if, if you'll indulge me for a minute, I want to just um, share one paragraph again from Whitehead's process in reality about this question um, to show how science has its origins in religion in some sense, mm -hmm. and that we don't need to think of these, these two approaches to interpreting our experience as in conflict with each other, but actually if they are in conflict with each other, as they are in our contemporary culture, that's a huge problem that metaphysics needs to get in there and work out. Mm -hmm. Because if we think we can have science without religion or religion without science, we're all very confused. 
right? That would be the Whiteheadian view. So here's, here's how it frames this. This demand for an intellectual justification of brute experience has also been the motive power in the advance of European science. In this sense, scientific interest is only a variant form of religious interest. Any survey of the scientific devotion to truth as an ideal will confirm this statement. There is, however, a grave divergence between science and religion in respect to the phases of individual experience with which they are concerned. Religion is centered upon the harmony of rational thought with the separation from which experience originates. Science is concerned with the harmony of rational thought with the percepta themselves. When science deals with emotions, the emotions in question are percepta and not immediate passions. In other words, other people's emotion and not our own. At least our own, or at least our own in recollection and not in immediacy. Religion deals with the formation of the experiencing subject, whereas science deals with the objects, which are the data forming the primary phase in this experience. So science finds religion uh, religious experience among its percepta and religion finds scientific concepts among the conceptual experiences to be fused with particular sensitive reactions. Okay. So, you know, the, the point of that here is Whitehead's trying to look at our experience and say, you know, science is just an attempt to, to describe what we are aware of in perception. Right. And when we talk about religion, we're talking about our own emotional response to what we are aware of in perception. And these need not be in conflict we distinguish between the two, but they're not in conflict. They're both ingredient in a complete human experience of, of the world. Um, but also just his first point there about truth, that the scientific devotion to truth is a variant of the religious interest. And the only reason we believe there is such a thing as truth and that it matters is, is, a, is a metaphysical, um, it has metaphysical roots, this, this belief, right? And scientists, as much as religious believers, share, I think, this sense that uh, that reality makes sense. Yeah. Um, I know you want me to summarize my no, book, I, but I'll I, pause I, there. I guess. Can I, yeah, can I hang on that? Well, so there's I'll, a lot I'll of pain it, there, so that's beautiful. Yeah. I, I wanna, <laughs> I'm going to try to make it simpler. Um, I was looking for a heat... Matt has a great uh, little line in this book. I couldn't find it. I thought I underlined it about how uh, Whitehead knew that he was, you know, had some problem with jargon. And I forget how you put it. It's a great little line in there and why he had to, you know, not justify it. But um, uh, I think one of the reasons why metaphysicians get into neologisms is because the common words come with too much baggage and the baggage puts you right back into the old frame. So, but I think that when I said good metaphysics, clarity and simplicity, I think this is the job that people can do with Whitehead now. Um, because Whitehead, you know, these people, they're also, they're writing at the edge of their own thinking. Like, especially if you read James's lectures or Whitehead's lectures, where they're just like, extemporaneously saying things you know so you have so it's our job a little further on uh to try to you know make it simpler and and more clear without reducing the complexity so 
I think the problem we have today is that both religion and science have been diminished because they're trying to be exclusive to each other. So what do I mean by that? You take a religious viewpoint and you say, what is God? God is the answer to what is it all about? Why is there something rather than nothing? What is our place in the universe? What is, you know, what is my relation, my personal relationship to God? All of these are these kinds of questions. And when the physicists start talking about the Big Bang and string theory, they're trying to answer, what is the origin of the universe? I mean, it's the same question. So you can't say that they're not trying to, they're, they're in a religious question or, or they've kicked religion out of that question. The problem with religion is that it's kind of stalled out in the mythopoetic mindset. It's, it's said, okay, well, that's science. So religion is going to be this lineage of um, uh, anthropology of a certain people in a mythopoetic mindset. Now, having said that, there are people like Teilhard de Jardin and um, uh, forgot, and even um, some contemporary uh, religious thinkers who aren't that interesting in terms of trying to match science and and so I think that if you're a physicist and you're trying to answer what it's all about, or if you're a psychologist and trying to tell people through your, the science of psychology, what is the self and what's the self's relationship to you know, history, these are religious questions. I mean, what else does religion answer? These are the kinds of questions religion answered, except religion has been stuck in mythopoetic form. And science is not willing to under, this is why people accuse science of being a religion, because they're trying to answer the same questions. And so for me, that's where, take the whole bubble and see, um, look, which, you know, the, take the whole human condition of approaching these questions in a modern day setting where these things live in both philosophers and scientists and try to look at them as this whole question. And, you know, you see people like Michael Levin talking to Chris Fields, who, who presents at the Science and Non-Duality Conference now. You start, you're starting to see some movement in both directions, which I find very hopeful. Um, but this means that, and, and, and here, here's the problem. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Because I'm going to argue, like, this direction that I'm talking about, don't diminish religion and science. They're in many cases trying to answer the same questions, which is different than technology and engineering, let's say. Um, um, I believe that fierce, something like a fierce naturalism is in that direction. Over here, you have people in the mythopoetic traditions with... Um, um, who are philosophers who are going into very idealist and, and even supernatural places, even though they're saying they're not supernaturalists. And so this, I think, is a little bit of a difference. Uh, this is like what's in the mix, what's in the mix here. Um, so I, you know, this is a, this is more of a personal um, uh, attraction toward combining science and looking at it this way versus um, 
taking something like Neoplatonism and going up the idealist, you know, really working the metaphysics of an idealist kind of lineage. Um, but both are in the system. They're both both are, are re- people are being recaptivated by these questions. Well, I just, I mean, you know, and people know this from that follow you talk. Uh, but but yeah, what evolved with the whole you talk thing was so fascinating in relationship to that because because ultimately the three philosophical pillars of the tree of knowledge, which then becomes the scientific view of behavior. The Iquag Koimish comes the embodied experience of a unique particular, and the garden itself, which is the mythos the, of collective wisdom. Uh, and it is these fundamental sort of epistemological frames in their interrelation that knowledge uh, is about, ultimately. And, and, and that, so when you're talking about zooming and seeing the whole, that's exactly where I ended up going and, and really needing to build uh, architectures uh, for those vectors of understanding to then see uh, their interrelation. Uh, that, that's what at least manifested in the, in the UTOC structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think all three of us are in agreement that um, spirituality is not like an extra added on uh, thing that, you know, we don't necessarily need or something to live a fulfilling human life, that it's, it's part of what it means to be human is to be a spiritual animal. And in, in the context of trying to make sense of the natural sciences, um, the distinction between science as a method and uh, a certain kind of metaphysics that is often conflated with science, historically, scientific materialism, it, it, we need to be able to make that distinction because on the scientific materialist metaphysical interpretation of science, uh, there's no room left for human spirituality other than maybe as just this sort of heroic, it could be sort of construed as this like heroic acceptance of this sad fate that, you know, when we die, our brains uh, decay and, and we just snap out of existence. And it's like, we never existed in the first place and the sun's going to explode and heat death of the universe and all these things where, you know, you could, I could see how you could derive a sort of heroic, um, tragic view of life from that. And, but, but that's just to really um, uh, make this point that even in a materialist cosmos, if, if you believe that you need some spiritual way of reconciling yourself to it. Right. But I don't think we need to go in that direction, interpreting science um, and, you know, process metaphysics gives us an alternative to materialism to be totally consonant with the findings of science, but to, um, interpret it all in a more integrative way that doesn't explain away our human experience, but actually enhances it. Um, and, you know, to speak to what, what Bonnie, you were saying about this mythopoic direction that um, the religious mindset wants to take us in, it's, it's perfectly valid and important in its own terms. Right. And as you're describing that the garden, uh, you know, around the tree of knowledge is informing us all the time. And when we reach beyond the boundaries of our knowledge, we're going to get mythopoic and that's okay. Right. It's just that it's important to distinguish between what is knowledge and what is myth. Not that myth is just lies, but that myth is, it's kind of the fuzzy boundaries of what, what we can know. Um, but you know, Whitehead's God talk is as he himself puts it an attempt to secularize the concept of God's function in the world, to secularize the concept of God's function in the world. 
Um, and he says, this is an urgent task for philosophers today. Um, you know, and he adds that obviously God is um, an essential element in our religious feelings and emotions, but, but in talking about God and his philosophy, he's saying that the converse is not true. Like we don't, the concept of the religious feeling is not an essential element in the concept of God's function in the universe. So we can bracket the religious emotions mm -hmm. and just look at well, how does, how does this concept of God function in terms of the organization of the universe and our knowledge of that organization? He thinks we can still make reference to this, um, primordial actual entity mm. and we, not only that we can still make reference to it but that we need to in order to make sense of not only the order of the world but the uh, our capacity for knowledge of that order and the uh, the arc of evolution towards complexity um, if if entropy were the whole story we shouldn't be here to regret the fact um, and, you know, physical cosmologists get around that paradox by saying, well, the early universe must have been very, uh, low entropy or very highly ordered, but okay. You're describing God <laughs> in no other terms. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. So let's go. I have a practical question and that is one of the things that I notice is so, so. Um, with my students or with my work is that if uh, if a lot of people won't get like a spiritual hit reading Whitehead because it's not in mythopoetic language. In other words, if every time that for many of my students, if I make the move from, oh, this myth, this is what it's saying, and then blah, 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 and it maps onto science, they feel cheated of the religious experience. Mm. And when I do that, I feel like, wow, every blade of grass is God. Mm. So there's something going on here that I don't, that, that I'm trying to fix, uh, let's say that's not the right word, but that, that is why is a, you know, for me, being coming much more naturalistic and understanding the divinity in the cosmos from this beautiful um, uh, creative array of expression um, makes me, you know, I can parse that down to, to the geology of this rock or something. And then I, because, because appreciating the geology of this rock I can feel threaded all the way to the origins of the universe. To me, this is extremely religious and spiritual experience. But what we have in our culture, you know, this is not true in other cultures. A, a woman from um, either Singapore, I think Singapore or Taiwan in my course, she's like, oh, these things don't bother us because we think all of we're just animals and we're just all of nature is God, you know. And there's something about I think it's a it must be a Christian Western thing. There's something about people feeling that if there's a logical metaphysical 
even though the, these metaphysics are creative and imaginative, they feel robbed of the religious experience. And this, I think, is something confusing to me because for me, it's just the opposite, you know, that that it's that there's something in nature, not in the human storytelling. Of course, we we were in that phase where the only way we could express God was through storytelling. But to me, there's this this consilience is is. I just find it opens up a huge amount of spiritual experience so that I look at the most trivial thing and wonder why, you know, coffee does what it does, because there is a resonance between the tree and the bean and my nervous system. And to me, this is like a spiritual experience. Does that make any sense? Kind of. That makes but yeah. why, why is that? Is that is this well, is this a perpetual human need? Is this a Christian need in a Western culture? If you're a Taoist or a Buddhist, there's not so much need for that. I mean, I think if we just um, I, if we can be kind of concrete about it, I mean, you know, my dad got an evangelical conversion and a Billy Graham concert, you know, um, and bought for, I mean, he then became a history professor. And by the time I came along, he was secular. Um, but, you know, his metaphysics are, oh, you know, I'm not, re I'm kind of an animal, but I have a God-given soul, I realized. And Jesus died on the cross. Um, and there's no way to explain. It's a miracle. Um, and the real world uh, this is a shell of a real world. I will be with my fathers and my ancestors, and I will be close to God after I die. There is, I mean, the um, if you if that is your schema uh, for how the and now he's like he's more or less became then a materialist and is like, well, I want to make the most out of this life. Um, mm. uh, but he then lost. There is no meaning in life. That's what he said. So the, it's a, we can make it up and be okay. But it was a capital M meaning, that's his narrative, uh, to be then next to God. And, and the, what's the religious experience there is these mystical, you can never understand because there's a real meta person, <laughs> you know, a spiritual cosmic meta person who loves you um, and, and loves your non-material soul, right? That's fundamentally different than the natural philosopher's concern about the clockwork of the universe. If you split the world that way, uh, it seems to me that then what we're, what I, I get exactly what you say. I'm, and I get, it's really interesting with your history, the lineage of the justification system you're born in. So I bo get born into a materialist kind of, oh yeah, we'll make the best out of it. Mines will be happy rather than sad, even though we're really just talking meat. I mean, that's basically what, until then I then basically adopted uh, what I think is certainly a, a close to Whiteheadian view, if we want to use that as our frame of reference, to realize my profound process interconnected with that everything and realize the potentiality of my experience as a network of, you know, conscious realization within the nested capacities uh, of the universe to be realized. And it is that resonant frequency that is real, that is reality. Um, and, and to be an expression of that, to be connected to that, to honor that in the context of a universe where this may be quite rare, um, you know, go that direction and just have them. I mean, I walked into Food Lion, I tell people, because occasionally I get with this wave, I started weeping. I was like, what a miracle, <laughs> a Food Lion. Mm. You know? um, but it's just this yeah. striking, um, overwhelming uh, experience of mir miracle. Um, 
so I, I really, you know, so I'll just throw that out there. But if you have a concrete interpretation of Christianity in a simplistic way, I do think it yields the kind of like, what are you talking about? This is a, like, I got to, uh, I want to get to God. Uh, I don't want to just like look around here. Maybe I'm uh, being, you know, there's obviously many different angles on that. But I'll, uh, from that angle, at least to me, it doesn't seem that confusing. Yeah, I mean, it's the whole um, Christian, Judeo-Christian, biblical mythos, let's call it, is uh, a fascinating case study, because on the one hand, in the ways that it gets literalized in contemporary fundamentalism, it's an example of one of those symbol systems that has totally detached us from uh, the actual world. Um, But on the other hand, there are ways of reading it uh, biologically, reading it psychologically, whether through Jung or um, through like Rene Girard and his understanding of mimesis and scapegoating and like ways in which this at some deeper structural or archetypal level, this symbolism is actually a reflection of a deep um, reality, right? And so <clears throat> we could we could talk about that, but I think it, to say Whitehead's trying to secularize the concept of God is to say he's trying to naturalize God and naturalize religion. And, you know, um, Daniel Dennett has this book, Breaking the Spell. And I completely agree with his premise, totally disagree with where he ends up. But of course, we need to naturalize religion and naturalize religious experience and understand what is it about the universe that leads human beings to have these types of experiences and develop these types of uh, symbolisms and, and myths. And you know, in so many ways, Whitehead's God is the Tao. And while he looks at the history of science and points out that, that deism was the metaphysical theological background for scientific rationality and the pursuit of scientific explanations, like Newton, uh, Descartes, none of these guys would have, Kepler, they would have, Copernicus, they wouldn't have come up with these models and these attempts to scientifically explain what's going on unless they had this deistic conception in the back of their imaginations. But Whitehead's saying, okay, we can't continue to imagine God in this deistic way as separate from the universe, provided the eternal laws that determine the behavior of these material particles that he created by fiat uh, at the beginning. We have to naturalize God so that God does start to seem something more like this, um, you know, Chinese idea of the Tao, where the, that God as a, creative ordering principle, not a fixed order, but an ordering activity that's new in each moment. Um, it, it brings God into the world, and but it also lifts the world up into God. And so it's not just that we're naturalizing and eliminating anything spiritual. We're saying the spiritual and the natural um, are, are just two ways of, of describing the same process. And when we say, when we focus on the natural or the physical, we're talking about um, kind of what's already actualized. And we're talking about the spiritual, we're talking about what are the potentialities that halo that actual, that actuality, you know, and both of them, uh, the actual and the potential are necessary aspects of reality. And, and, you know, one way of understanding what materialism is doing is reducing everything to the actual saying reality is just the sum total of already actualized bodies, physical stuff. And it just gets rearranged, right? And when you include potentiality or possibility in the mix, all of a sudden um, you get a cosmogenesis and you get this universe of ongoing complexification and deepening consciousness. You know, I have some issues with Teilhard, but 
his overall view. Yeah, I think. Not, yeah. Well, I think he. I think it, as a historical figure, he's fascinating, and I think um, I think his uh, people who have popularized him have have misrepresented him. Although I think he was ambiguous about which side of. Those two if he can energies. inspire both the Pope, Pope Francis, and Ray Kurzweil, there's clearly multiple ways of interpreting what he's saying, right? <laughs> I'm going to integrate him with Whitehead, but... Um, I have you know, a paper for you on that. Oh, good. Send it my way. Um, uh, yeah, so I think... So why does it matter? I think it matters because one could argue that... Um, you know, and, I, and what I want to say is what I'm interested in is also for the mythopoetic religions to um, to be imaginative, which they are. I mean, there's a lot of revisionist uh, interpretations, but to be imaginative about um, their own uh, assumptions so that now we have three, three uh, groups that can talk to each other. But I think that for me, what's extremely important about naturalizing um, spirituality is the fact that I don't think it's a coincidence that we're destroying nature and our planet because we have both a science that is doesn't see things as sacred and as a religion that doesn't see the sacred in the natural. And I think that if you have a religion that tells you you're sacred and you should be nice to nature, I don't think that's deep enough because there's still a gap. And I think it has to be experiences God all the way down. And this is where we get to the, your descend, you use it. Descendental. Descendental. Um, a descendental philosophy and aesthetic ontology. And, um, and, I, I love um, that, by the way. That was, um, and, and that's certainly, so just for folks that are uh, for in the book, uh, of course, well, not of course, but Khan has a transcendental idealism that he's trying to then uh, abstract out the categories of mind, uh, imagine what kind of mind can, uh, you know, uh, interpret nature in a particular kind of way. Um, but he doesn't have any, uh, maybe I'm overshooting this, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not a Khan scholar, but he doesn't have any good um, frame of reference for where that mind comes from, <laughs> in essence, uh, in, in kind of an evolutionary, an, any kind of updated evolutionary sense. I'll say from my vantage point, I know because all the knowledge that I use to place the uh, humans in the network wasn't available to Kant. Uh, so he would be speculating tremendously. And just the basic way in which he frames the issue, it is an abstracted knower um, uh, knowing about the world in a separate way. Um, and then we need to reintegrate the emergent knower uh, and its history um, in relationship to the world. Um, so then I'll just give that as a little bit of context uh, for what you're pointing to here. So and I certainly yeah. fully agree with that. Yeah, I mean, what Kant, so I mean, maybe this is a good time for me to try to just lay out the project in that book. Um, I treat Kant as the guardian of the threshold of uh, knowledge of these big ideas that used to be at the core of dogmatic metaphysics, which was all metaphysics before Kant, uh, God, the soul, and the world. Uh, so theology, uh, psychology, and cosmology, um, which, you know, we obviously 
can approach scientifically, but if you take Kant's critique seriously, we, we can't know the soul or the psyche in itself. We can't know uh, God. We can't know the origins or destiny of the world because we're limited by our sensory experience and all of our concepts can only determine uh, what our senses provide to us. Our, our concepts don't reach beyond our sensory experience. And so none of us can experience the world as a whole. We can't step outside the cosmos and look in on it. None of us have, well, Kant would say, we, none of us have experience of God. Um, that's at least uh, publicly verifiable, right? Uh, and similarly, he would say, we don't have direct experience of our, of our souls as a substance in the way that Descartes claimed, I think therefore I am, and I am a thinking thing. Kant says, all you know is this, this intuition of time that's constantly rebinding you back to your own past, but that's an appearance. <laughs> you don't know what's behind it. So Kant serves as this guardian of the threshold, right, of knowledge of these things. And what I try to do with the descendental approach to philosophy is invert what Kant's up to. And there's so many ways in which this is a, this is, I'm not trying to refute Kant. Mm. I'm trying to um, intensify his inquiry in a way. And I'm following, you know, I'm, I'm really interpreting Schelling here who did this uh, and Whitehead who did this as well. And, you know, as Bonnie, like you said, I'm trying to make the language a little bit more, Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to play the role of mama bird digesting this this food, these hard seeds into something that uh, normal people can digest and eat and be nourished by. Uh, and hopefully I succeed on some level at that. Um, but, you know, I, I've read this book um, does more than a dozen times, certain passages even more than that. And I continue to squeeze juice out of it because it's just so dense and rich. Um, so, but, you know, Kant doesn't explain where the categories of understanding come from. It's interesting because he has a very evolutionary view of the physical world, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, he develops this whole nebular hypothesis of the formation of the solar system. And he's one of the first people to say, oh, those other nebula maybe those are other Milky Ways up there, right? And so uh, he's this very, uh, very ahead of his time scientifically and cosmologically. And um, even, you know, even Descartes had speculated about the emergence of species over history and stuff. It hadn't been articulated in a, um, in a way like Darwin with a law of natural selection to explain the process, but nonetheless, they had this intuition, right? But he doesn't apply this to the human mind at all. For, for Kant, rationality has, it's, it's these the necessary and universal categories that are just mm-hmm. fixed and you derive them from um, logic, you know, from the, the, the way that we can form propositions. Um, there's a, there's a set amount of categories that, that we draw upon Kant thinks to make any possible proposition that we could about the nature of reality. And so he's not evolutionary enough in a sense, but we don't want to go to the opposite extreme, which would be the Humean view or the Lockean view of what a concept or a category is as just a faded sensory impression or something. Um, Because, and this is where Whitehead's really interesting. He is in this empiricist tradition ultimately He's, an, he's a radical empiricist like William James, where he thinks we have 
we directly experience relations and not just um, isolated universals, which is what you get in Hume. Um, so he's a radical empiricist, but he's also a mathematician. And he's quite Platonist about mathematical objects and mathematical patterns. He, he, he thinks there's no way for us to you know, understand even something as simple as a number, um, like two, as something that's just generalized from experience of many particular instances of two items, because the, the, the essence tunis, the form of tunis is like so general. It applies to any two particular forms of, of thing. And it's like, he, you know, I don't want to get into the whole platonic argument for why there need to be forms, but what it has this way of wanting to have it both ways, as it were, mm-hmm. um, being radically empirical, but also not denying that there is something um, about mathematical patterning and the relationships among abstract possibilities that seem to pre-exist our experience, our actual experience of them, right? Um, but descendental philosophy is a, is an inversion of Kant so that rather than thinking, um, you know, that as Kant had it, our experience of space and time are just, uh, forms of our own intuition that we project out onto a world that's ultimately unknowable In Whitehead's view, uh, space and time are, um, a function of our inheritance of the uh, achievements of order that have been laid down through cosmic history. We're, we're not inside of space and time as this pre-given container space and time and the, and the structure of it has emerged in the course of, of cosmogenesis. And when we come to describe them mathematically, we are applying uh, abstract symbolic representation to something that's ultimately rooted in our feelings, our feelings of causal inheritance of the whole history of the universe. And the descendental turn is is reorienting us. And it's it's my way of describing, you know, the the 4E shift in cognitive science. It's a fully embodied way of knowing. And it's an attempt to uh, shift from categories of thought to categories of feeling, as Whitehead puts it, uh, as the 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 core of, of philosophical analysis and metaphysical analysis. Um, and then the aesthetic ontology bit is is I, I guess mostly coming out of Nietzsche in his. I'll, I'll just um, pause you there. So one yeah. thing that was actually um, quite influential for me, a book that was influential on several different levels, is a book called Where Mathematics Comes From um, by uh, Lakoff and Nunez. It, it, um, and George Lakoff is a cognitive uh, scientist, but that, that goes into a lot of thought metaphor is congruent with, I don't know if he considers himself a 4E cognitive scientist or not, uh, more on the cognitive linguistic side, but the embodied linguistics um, and the process by which our, what I would say, our primate mindedness informs our uh, propositional linguistic structure. That's what he um, highlights at multiple levels. And he paired up with a mathematician, looked at the history of mathematics and made the case uh, for the evolution of abstraction, uh, basically from feeling. Um, that mathematics is an evolution of abstraction across feeling. Uh, and so if you haven't heard that, I would recommend that um, because it's got a, a very similar argument. Uh, and it's, I think it's very well done. It certainly was very influential. I know I've read Lakoff 
and Johnson and uh, their book Philosophy in the Flesh, I think it's called, where they go into this a little bit. Okay. Um, so yeah, I think this is consistent with that view. Um, but then just the last little piece here about aesthetic ontology, which should initially, if people know the history of these terms, you know, ontology is like our study of, of reality, of what exists. Aesthetics is the study of appearance. And so I seem to be mashing together these opposites, uh, appearance and reality. And I think what, you know, thinkers like Whitehead allow us to do is overcome that dichotomy. And, you know, Nietzsche has this line, um, um, I forget which, which book it is, but it's about, it's the, the, um, it's about the fable of the true world and this evolution of thought from Plato through Kant and uh, or Christianity and Kant and up into Nietzsche's view, which is a more perspectival view. And, you know, he basically runs through how in Plato, you get this original division between the realm of forms, which is the real world. And then the realm of appearances, which is just the shadows on the cave wall. And, you know, Nietzsche basically wants to say there is no such thing as, as an ideal world out there. Uh, beyond this apparent world. But if we get rid of the reality behind the appearances, then appearances are not just appearances anymore. Right. And so, you know, aesthetic ontology, it's an invitation to consider uh, an experiential ground of reality, that there is no um, substantial thing in itself out there that is merely represented to us in our experience. It's not that what first meets the eye is the, is the full um, you know, nature of that experiential reality. There are always layers of feeling upon feeling and uh, feelings become contrasts. And you can sort of analyze that and get down to simpler feelings. Um, but aesthetic ontology is just this attempt to get over the search for something that would be beyond experience that might explain experience. Um, you know, Whitehead has this line that abstractions cannot explain concrete experience. It's always concrete experience. It's going to provide the explanation for our abstractions. And this has to do with experiential adequacy uh, that, you know, Bonnie, you started us off with. Um, and so there's a lot, it, it could be perceived as giving up what metaphysics is traditionally after here, which is to like peel away the veil of appearances to get to what's really real. But Whitehead's saying, look, either there are only veils, or if we follow Nietzsche though, to think of, um, we need to think of the the aesthetic encounter with the the world as uh, the very nature of the world itself. The world is made of experience, if you want, right? So, where does this take us? Does that Bonnie? You does that make sense? Bonnie's read my book more more recently than I have, so maybe no, she remembers. No, no. Thinking, I get. I want to go into too many different places. Um, so I think it's. I think it's unfortunate, and I know you're talking about the history of philosophy, but I think it's very unfortunate that this word aesthetic and appearance are are come together in the history of philosophy, um, because when I'm having an experience of beauty across a range of beauty or like Christopher Alexander having an experience of what is more alive. Um, I'm not, I'm not paying attention. I'm not attending to an object in the way that Kant attends to an object when he uses the word appearance. 
I'm standing in front of the artwork or the landscape and all my perceptual organs are open and I'm aware of that, but the experience itself, there's an immediate receptivity from that into my feeling. I feel that it's awesome and beautiful. I, so, so for me, that experience, I, I would, where would you place the word appearance? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not interacting with an appearance. My sens sensual, sensual, sensory and sensual organs are open. And at first I'm, you know, th this is something that um, I often talk about. The, the, some uh, someone was staying here for a couple of months this uh, summer, a long time ago, and and every day would you know walk down the long driveway, and we had at that time a lot of rabbits because it was a drought. Now the climate's changed a little bit here, and you know he would come back and say, "Oh, you know, I saw the rabbit again today," and it was a really nice experience, right? But one day he came back and he said, "No." I never actually saw the rabbit until today because he entered into this like what like before it was like a little Disney movie. He saw the rabbit in the landscape and the nice pine tree. This was like he was in interacting with appearances. And this time there was something where like, he, you know, he couldn't he wouldn't necessarily be able to come back and draw where the rabbit was in relationship to things because he didn't have this like egocentric where everything, you know, it was, he was like, I could feel how he, you know, it was like he was oh he was impregnated with the landscape and the rabbitness of it all. Yeah. And so in this case, we're not talking about blind sight. I mean, it's not like the person's blind but the attention is not taking note of appearances by any means. Yeah. And this is where I think there's tremendous confusion because that's not what aesthetic means. Aesthetic has nothing to do with the appearances. Hmm. Uh, and once you start talking about appearances, then you have this, there's a simulation going on. I mean, it, I don't want to get into it, but it's the same problem with Buddhist phenomenology. They take mental content and they start seeing it as appearances yes you can have that experience where content of consciousness are appearances and then they of course they say well then it's empty because it dissolves upon examination as all appearances do but that's not the immediate you would say prehension of beauty or the immediate prehension of one's own experience has this other flavor. And so th that this word appearance gets gets snuggered in. You know, we get this is this is very unfortunate in Eastern, you know, in the Western Enlightenment, in the Eastern uh, scholastics about uh, phenomenology, like the Pasana mm. and stuff like that. So right. I don't know if that made sense. I've never really articulated it quite in these terms before, but that, I'm not saying yeah. you're making that mistake, Matt. I'm saying you're showing that there's this word appearance that becomes problematic in the whole history of philosophy. It makes us feel separate from the world. Right. And and to prehend the rabbit is actually for the what was the rabbit's experience just a moment prior 
actually is transmitted into my experience. The rabbit becomes part of me. That's how I experience it. And it's going it's, on on the other side of the equation too. If there's only it goes two in both sides. directions. Exactly. It goes in all directions. Yeah. And this is a kind of revitalization of this like Aristotelian theory of perception and knowing, a conformal but, theory. Right. And the and the other thing is in those kinds of experiences, the or the or the organs of perception are now made whole. Because when we talk about appearances, it's it's usually very sighted, right? And and so this is another problem. Like, where does the organ of visual perception begin and end? It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't end. It's not in my eyes, in my retina, in my brain. Because spatial awareness is it, and so it's the reason why we're so confused about perception and appearances is because we've defined, we've delimited the organs of perception isolated from what is actually the organ of perception is at least the body and the entire environment is an organ of perception. Yep. And so this, everything I'm saying, I think, I mean, I, I know it's aligned with Whiteheadian philosophy it's consequential to his vision, but a lot of the mistakes we make are because we've got these words like appearances or the visual, the, you know, neuroscientists study the visual system. Well, you can't study the visual system. You have to study the whole fucking cosmos. This is what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get these, you get these paradoxes about vision that is, you know, a, is it an illusion or is it a direct, you know, so, and then we get all confused because we adopt the language of appearances and then we think reality is completely constructed and we can't find ourselves in the world, blah, 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 blah. So th- this is, um, yeah, you said something that got me going. Sorry. I mm. Yeah. So excited. Well, it's it's Whitehead's theory of perception is a critique of the obsession with visual feelings in the history of especially modern philosophy. And he says modern philosophers have been obsessed with their visual feelings and they have disdained their visceral feelings. And so, you know, Whitehead's version of Kant's forms of intuition of space and time, in Whitehead's language, our spatial perception is presentational immediacy, which is everything you're describing yes. as appearance. Causal efficacy is more of our temporal perception. It's our inheritance of the past. And, you know, Whitehead thinks that that causal efficacy, the feeling of causal transmission is, is what's basic in our experience and what we see with our eyes and hear with our ears and everything. That's a much later uh, elaboration upon this causal basis. And all the modern philosophers from Hume to Kant, uh, they all, you know, Kant, so Hume has this critique of causality, right? It's nowhere to be found in our appear in the appearance of the world to our right. to our eyes, right? Um, there's no necessary connection between these patches of color that we associate in our visual experience. But but he even Hume admits we see with our eyes. And Whitehead right. picks up on that and says, Oh, you're admitting causality as you attempt to right. dispel it. But this is but, why you were saying you start with Kant. And you take him at his word, because if you're working with appearances, everything Kant is saying is right. Right. But yeah. the move is to realize that appearances is not the way to go. And on some level, it's the shift between thinking time is just internal to the mind. And actually, like at least Smolin would say, no, time is fundamental to reality. And it's it's actually that simple of a move to get time out of this anthropocentric purview and say the whole cosmos that, that 
to the directionality, the irreversibility of time and causal transmission is, is basic to cosmogenesis and not just to human experience as Kant had it. Right. And that has all sorts of implications. Um, but, um, it, it, one of them is that it breaks us out of this, uh, solipsism of, of the present moment and of a, a world of mere appearances, which if you don't admit this other channel of experience through causal transmission, you end up very quickly in a kind of idealism, which makes perfect sense. If you think that our experience of the world is limited to the five senses, when Whitehead says all, all five of the senses, but especially the eyes are very superficial channels of experience. And that really for Whitehead, the primal dimension of our experience is emotion and mood right in the sense of mm-hmm. yeah i mean we do these experiments it, it takes a long time you have to be careful but with um you can go online and you can do color color you can order colors very 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 subtle variations in color from blue green to green blue and you notice that you 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 can make discernment you just move it around and almost everybody unless you're colorblind this is very difficult but you just keep moving them and you can tell which one stands out, right? And then you ask, how can you do that? And you know you're using your eyes, but as people do this experiment, they say, because it feels out of place. The eyes and the mind, see, it's too fine grain for the mind to categorize it. And so you realize you're not using your eyes in the categorizing process of your mind, you're using your eyes and your feeling. And this is the way we talk about like all the real refined perception. This is gross perception, but there are these, the, the fundamental perceptual capacity is feeling. Like it's, it's not like a oh, green feels cool and blue feels warm. It's not that, it's not linguistic. It's that um, um, we we move to set we move to linguistic representations of sight, sound, taste, touch that are already more coarse grained than what the actual organs of perception are in you know uh, what Jenlin would call first person process, which is not a perspective. There's other and I, you have. Mm-hmm that term so to me i think that this kind of language i think you know i think it's it if you had a lifetime to do your work greg you could weave these subtleties in those layers and and um and then of course the model would be less clinically useful probably because we're sucking you into metaphysics. But I think that- I think I've already um, been sucked in. Uh, <laughs> and for me, right, for me, what, yes, there's a lot to learn, uh, a, beautiful, a lot of beautiful things to learn. It's also the case that, uh, you know, the, the, where I get to sit with the emergence of knowledge about predictive processing, recursive relevance realization, evolution of investment value structures, um, I mean, you talk gives us a frame. Well, actually, what's happening is a sensory motor loop on a perfectual action loop, whereby you get exterioreception, tracking interioreception to give an energized motion, emotional response, always in a 
affordance-driven investment value context, right? Um, so all of that then is this minded field of mindedness uh, that we find ourselves in. Um, so so, so be, I, I, I look forward to learning more. I'm, um, I've been lovely. It's been a lovely journey and, and intrigued into your conversation and your process around process philosophy. Uh, and I'm finding a, a, a tremendous amount to both learn from and enjoy with Whitehead. And I think that there's um, actually within not so much clinical, although it is interesting, I will say it's cool that the system goes all the way to, you know, the suffering in the clinic room. Mm -hmm. the, the key is that it, it's a, you know, a cognitive behavioral neuro embedded at an ethological embedded in a um, bioecological model um, that, that affords resonance across uh, both time and uh, scale and layers of complexification. Um, so th this is great. Um, I've really enjoyed this. I, I, we should probably start to uh, bring this to a close. Uh, I don't know if there's any particular points that uh, we were hoping to bring in today that we didn't get to. We should certainly do that. Or if there are any um, beginning closing messages or sentiments or reflections uh, that we will offer folks who have been uh, hanging with us in this uh, cool exchange. Mm -hmm. Whitehead says philosophy begins in wonder, it echoes Aristotle. And he says at the end, when philosophy has done its best, the wonder remains, right? And so there's nothing in his approach to metaphysics, or I think I can generalize to process metaphysics uh, as such, that's seeking to explain away that wonder or to explain away mystery. The point is uh, to, to find some way of um, approaching this emotion of wonder, which is the most appropriate response we can have to existing, uh, and to begin to, I mean, Whitehead would say rationalize it, uh, but to elucidate it, to make sense of it, to uh, find ways of leveraging the order implicit in uh, the cosmic flow so as to enhance the flourishing of, of human and all life. Right, so there's a practical import. One of the most important contributions that Kant made was connecting metaphysics to practical uh, philosophy, to morals and ethics and the question of freedom and how we can participate in this cosmic process. You know, that leads in some ways into pragmatism, you know, Peirce and James and Dewey and Whitehead's coming out of that tradition too. And so that reorientation from just, ah, oh, how can we stand back and take, get it, get the, uh, eternal theoretical uh, perspective on this as if we're not involved in it. Well, we are involved in it. Knowledge is involved in the world. It's not a view from outside the world. And so knowledge has practical implications. Um, and, you know, one, one final little thing I'll say about where the sciences are at at the moment, the natural sciences is uh, there's been such a advance in the level of rigor involved in, you know, what Popper would call the logic of justification. But there's also this question of the logic of discovery and that's how paradigm shifts are made. And that's where creative imagination comes into play and these gestalt shifts that change not only the ideas we used to think about reality with, but our very perception of the world shifts as that happens. And I think um, taking seriously the role of imagination in the production of knowledge, whether scientific or any other kind, because there are other kinds of knowledge too, um, 
we need to remember that, uh, you know, there's still room to play here. And oh my gosh, the task of becoming um, conversant enough with where all the special sciences are at right now is pretty much impossible. I mean, we're all doing our best to stay up to speed with what everybody's up to um, advancing uh, the existing paradigms of the natural sciences. But there's, there's still so much room for us to come in and imaginatively connect what science has revealed uh, with what each of us without any special training has access to, which is, you know, the full depth of, of human experience. Um, so I think there's just an invitation for uh, this, this effort to articulate um, a more adequate worldview, right? That everyone can participate in. And we shouldn't think that this can just be outsourced to uh, the lab, the people working in the laboratories. Fun. That and <laughs> um, you know, no one or very few people wakes up in the morning and says, I wanna, you know, I wanna destroy the planet. I want more animals to die, I want more people to suffer. And I think that, you know, one time I saw these, these two young men, they had a little baby squirrel that was in some kind of uh, shock. And they had it in a box and they were, they were trying to pour water over it or have it drink or something like that. They were basically killing it because they didn't understand what a baby squirrel is. And I think we don't understand what the earth is and our place in it. And that's not to blame anyone, but I think we need a radical transformation in that understanding. And we need the courage to explore radically new metaphysics in order to get a start on that. It's not gonna come, it'll, it'll either come two ways. One, it'll come from the earth insisting on explaining itself to us uh, in a kind of uh, generative brutality, or we can be playful and creative and serious and imaginative until we harmonize our current knowledge systems with enough knowledge of the earth so that um, so that we can be more generative. And so um, all these restrictions on these kinds of uh, imaginative, creative ideas are silly, really. And um, I really, I'm very grateful for people like Matt who puts in the time and a huge amount of effort um, to do good metaphysics and not just to have an opinion, <laughs> right? A lot of people have opinion. And uh, I hope to <laughs> help in, uh, 
I just learned that trick from a student in my class earlier. Do you know you could do that on Zoom now? No, but I was doing something that was putting bubbles in on, on you. Yeah, well, thanks, Bonnie and, and Greg, both of you for reading the book uh, at all. Glad you're interested. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, both of you. Uh, and I've enjoyed, uh, there's so much more that we could have covered, yeah. uh, but I, I knew. Uh, uh, I'm late for class, yeah. so I have, <laughs> okay. I have to open uh, this Let's room. wrap it up. Uh, big hugs uh, all around. Love is important. To <laughs> connection and relation. I uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be in touch. Take care. See you all soon. Bye. Bye, Greg.